0: Longcast. Turning points in history in der I've come to talk to you about a dog I thought um, that would be a good start for the day And this dog was called Monsieur Grat So Mr. Scratch And Mr. Scratch was a beloved dog. Um, He and his owner were absolutely inseparable. The owner loved him and spoiled him and babied him and very probably took him to bed, not for any sexual purposes, but because it was the 17th century and winters were cold and dogs are warm. And so a happy community was founded. Now, Mr. Scratch's master was a certain man by the name of René Descartes. And you may know Descartes is one of the greatest philosophers of the European West of the 17th century. And he is a really, really important uh, person in our story. Because um, Descartes loved his dog. And he also wrote that animals don't have a soul, don't have a personality, don't have real feelings, don't have memories, that animals are simply things. Now, in his philosophical jargon, that sounds as follows. He says the world consists of two kinds of substance. And the one substance that is extended matter, that is basically everything that is material, and that is called res extensa, And, but then there's also the res cogitans, the thinking matter. And the thinking matter, that you only find in the human soul. You find it in the human soul, and of course you find it in the nature of God. And so humans are connected to God through their soul, and the rest of the world only consists of Matter and it may look as it if, if it is animated in the same way as humans are but really they are only things. Descartes also participated in the vivisection of dogs so when dogs were um, cut open while still alive to look at their working anatomy and he held that, the pulsing heart of a dog in his hand and yet he loved his dog. Now why am I talking to you so much about dogs? Because I think what we see here very beautiful is a certain kind of schizophrenia, a certain kind of schizophrenia that is not only true for the 17th century, but is also true for our own time. What Descartes, Descartes' relationship with his, his dog is not so different from that of any owner of a dog who feeds that dog meat from other feeling animals or indeed from any of us who eat meat and who think that somehow other animals are in nature different from us and we can do that without any problem. We can kill 80, million, 80 billion animals a year for our consumption. Now. When you put it like that, when you mention this schizophrenia that it really takes to think like that, you really have to split off two kind, two sides of your consciousness to say on the one hand I love this animal and on the other hand animals are not capable of love. Um, that I think it really becomes quite an interesting question where this comes from this schizophrenia. And also what it still does with us, or whether it still exists today. And, um, well, we only have a little bit of time, but I, we shall we shall travel over 6,000 years, so um, fasten your seat belts, because um, the, the, the trip's going to be fast. But I want to take you back, um, and the one I think you see coming immediately, the other one is perhaps a little bit more to see. I want to take you back to, this is the immediate one, to the Bible to a document where God, the Creator God, creates Adam and Eve on a separate day from all other animals. And then he gives them a good talking to and he says, you shall go out and should subjugate the earth. You should make the earth your slave. And you shall rule over the fish in the water and the animals on land and the birds in the air and you are the boss. Now, why is this remarkable? Well because basically it is historically a complete outlier. Every culture of course has had a special relationship with the nature around it, with the world around it, and those relationships weren't always harmonious. There are cultures that believe that they live at war with the world, and at war with their gods, and at war with the forces of nature, but they all see themselves as part of nature. And by the way, a little footnote only here, of course, when I speak about other cultures, you, you, we all have to be aware that we only know little fragments of what was there in cultural history in humanity. We really only know about the cultures that were either either left written sources or were still around when anthropologists galloped out into the world to misunderstand everything they saw. But um, there are so many cultures that have vanished without leaving any documents that you know of course we can only. We have a very small sample size. But that sample size tells us that really all cultures we know of were animists. Animists means that people believed in a lot of gods. And not only in gods, but also in spirits and ancestors and demons, etc. And they were all around. They were in everything. And if you're an animist, that means that you know that every step you take you take on the territory of someone else. There's another power that you disturb, that you trespass on if you go out into the world, if you go into the woods, if you sail on the water. And therefore you have to find an arrangement with those powers. And in the language of animistic religion, that arrangement is made by rituals. So, you sacrifice something, or you say a prayer, or you dance a dance, and then you have paid your dues to the ghosts of the place, or you, to the water god who will allow you to sail over the sea, and then you can do what you want. So you always know, as an animist, that you live in a reciprocal relationship with the world. You can take, but you also have to give. You can go into the system and change it, but you have to see how far it is willing to bear that and when the gods get angry. Now, why is this important? Because the Bible was really a mythological nuclear bomb. Because what the Bible tells us is, no, no, that's quite wrong. There are no voices in nature, there are no agencies in nature, there are no demons and other gods. Nature has no voice. What you see in front of you is just dead dust. And in a very patriarchal way, this dust, this land, can be owned, bought and sold, penetrated, inseminated, harvested. And there's very clearly an active part, which is humans, or really men, And then there's a passive part, which is the female Earth. And you see that the relationship to the world has been completely revolutionized between these two models. The animist model of knowing that you're always dealing with other forces, and the monotheist model that says, we are the boss, nobody else has a say in this, we can simply do what we want. Now, if we had a little bit more time, I would take you back even further, because Actually, the Bible didn't come up with this idea. It's not a biblical idea, and it's perhaps too much honor for the Bible to say, you know, oh, the the evil Bible has given us this. No, actually, the Bible was written in the 8th century before our, uh, 7th century before our time in Babylonia, because the Jews were exiled there. And as they codified the Holy Scriptures, to have a sort of portable homeland which was something really amazing to do. um, They took on an awful lot of influences from the Babylonian culture. And when you look at the Babylonian culture you see a culture that is built on subjugation entirely. It is fascinating because this takes us back to the first story we know from human history the first story that was written down, written down in the first writing system that there was. And the writing system was cuneiform, and this is early Mesopotamia, what is today southern Iraq, and the story is the epic of Gilgamesh. And Gilgamesh is a great and powerful king, but he wants to be more powerful and mightier. And therefore, what does he do? First of all, he goes to the cedar forest, And there he kills the forest spirit who has been put there by the gods to keep the forest intact. He kills the forest spirit and then he fells the trees to make temple doors out of them. Now that, today, we're surrounded by wooden doors. I see a beautiful uh, pair of wooden doors behind you. Why was that so special? Well, Mesopotamia was in southern Iraq and there are no trees there practically. So having cedar wood was sort of like gold. It was incredibly prestigious. And then the gods get angry with Gilgamesh, and Gilgamesh moves to defeat death itself, and to become immortal. Because he is actually two-thirds god and one-third human, and he wants to be entirely god, entirely immortal. And you know the fascinating thing? He fails in this. So the first hero in literature is a flawed hero, who feels that he is part of nature because he's one-third human but not really part of nature. He is two-thirds God and he wants to defeat death itself and he fails in it. Really, all of Western literary history is here in this six-thousand-year-old story. But what did he do with the cedar forest in shall we say modern terms? Well, he killed the forest spirit and he chopped down the trees so he disenchanted nature and he made it into an economic resource. And here again we have a whole swathe of human history. And really this Mesopotamian culture the the epic of Gilgamesh was found in a palace of a great Neo-Babylonian king called Ashurbanipal. And we had a library even in the 7th century before our Time of 30,000 volumes, all in cuneiform on clay tablets. And the rest of the beautiful palace of Ashurbanipal, which you can still visit today, um, is filled with beautiful, beautiful sculptures and frescoes and paintings, and they're all depictions of extreme violence. The king subduing his enemies, the king shooting lions with bow and arrow, the king um, strangling a lion with his bare hands, the king castrating his enemies, blinding his enemies, etc., etc. So subjugation was sort of baked into that culture. Just as, for instance, the Bible took the laws of the Babylonians The Bible took the stories, many of the stories of the Babylonians. What we know of the story of Noah and the Ark really already happens in in the Gilgamesh epic. We've already got that story thousands of years before the Bible was written. So why is this important? Because we've got a cultural paradigm here that was very geographically specific. Specific to Mesopotamia where this idea grew that human beings are not part of nature, that they are above nature, and that, like a king, they have to subdue nature, to subjugate it, with extreme violence. And here comes a really quite an historical irony, because once this had happened, once this was codified in the Jewish books, in the five books of Moses, really that was in the last breaths that this culture drew the neo babylonian Empire before it was subdued itself by the Persians. And so at the last moment that this culture exists it gets written into the book of another culture, the Jews, who keep it and keep it over centuries and it becomes part of Christianization and it gets transported to Europe like a time capsule And all of a sudden, in in Europe and late antiquity, we get the ideas of Mesopotamia that become interesting for the intellectual elite. And the subjugation of nature becomes something important. You know, there are three little steps that I want to take you through in the subjugation of nature because they describe us so much. And the first step is, if you're in late antiquity and you want to subjugate the earth, Where do you start? You don't have the technologies to do that. You know, your technologies are extremely simple and really subjugating the earth, changing the earth, is really impossible. So theologians like Saint Augustine begin to write, well what is meant by that, subjugating the earth, is to subjugate what is earthly in me. What is my earthly part? A bit like Gilgamesh being one-third part of nature, one-third human. So I have to fight against my body, my impulses, my lust, my desires, my needs, because I need to free my soul. I need to subjugate, first of all, myself. But in a second step, I can also ask, well, if I have to subjugate the earth as a divine command, what else is the earth? And as if by miracle, in late antiquity the theologians, of course, all of whom are men, come up with the idea, well, obviously women are closer to the earth than men. Women menstruate, women have children, and therefore they are part of the earth, so men must have, keep an eye on them. And not only that, but also people of darker skin are very clearly more like animals, closer to the earth, so white people have to rule over them. And suddenly you begin to see a world emerge that is awfully familiar. And we go a step further. We go to the Enlightenment. I've written a lot about the Enlightenment, and I still do. It's one of my great fascinations. And we know the Enlightenment today is the culture of reason that swept away all the cobwebs of old religion and superstition and ignorance and supplanted all of that with science and rationality. Well, I think it's not quite as simple as that because yes, the enlightenment was revolutionary. I think what was particularly revolutionary was first of all, the assumption of human equality, but secondly, also the fact that We think that people begin to argue that knowledge has to be backed up empirically or logically and not from tradition, not from old books. But at the same time, we mustn't forget that apart from Spinoza, who was Jewish, most of the Enlighteners, such as Rene Descartes, had been to Christian schools, had been often, very often, educated by Jesuits, and they were steeped in theology, in religious thinking. That was their first reflex intellectually. That was what they knew, that was what they had learned in school. And perhaps now you get a better understanding why Descartes could write that animals are only res extensa and don't have feelings and don't have personalities, because this is part of a theological tradition. Because humans are not part of nature for, to the Bible and are above nature and have to subjugate nature. And this is a very interesting point where we begin to see there's a lot of theology still in the Enlightenment which we no longer recognize. Look at the idea of progress. It's still an important idea today. Progress really is the Christian salvation history because in Christianity, history for the first time ever gets a direction and a goal that it can go towards and it goes upwards, it goes towards an ideal state. That has been imported into secular thinking and we call it progress. If you look at progress in a sort of scientific way you will find that well we have built enormous fantastic technologies but we've built them at the price of the natural systems that we rely on for survival. So I think the compound progress isn't that great if you look at that. But look at the idea that humans subjugate the earth. Well, this, um, the Enlightenment comes with the idea that we have to rule the world through science. And that is our calling. But again, the role of, the human, of, the hum, of humanity towards nature is not questioned only the means of doing this. The idea that human beings have to fight against the irrational side, have to be redeemed from themselves to become something higher, all of that creeps back in the Enlightenment. And all of a sudden you see that Enlightened thinking broke a lot of traditions but also continued a lot of traditions, and particularly traditions of a theological nature. Why I'm telling you all this is because I think we are still thinking in these traditions. The ideas such as progress, the scientific um, domination of nature, the fact that we live outside of nature and we are not like other animals, all these ideas are still very, very strong in our culture. They are still the natural reflex of most people in our culture and what we experience as the climate catastrophe is very much also a consequence of that. Why did this consequence arise so suddenly? Very, very simple. The cultures that used the idea of subjugating the Earth didn't have the technologies until they began to use fossil fuels in a great, at a great scale. And that meant that the productivity increased so immensely Um, that productivity was uncoupled from muscle power that all of a sudden the technologies became possible that could actually change natural systems. And that happened enormously suddenly. You see the CO2 um, imbalance in the atmosphere um, arising from 1960, roughly, um, from uh, since nineteen ninety, we have burned more fossil fuels than than all of humanity did in all of history before. So it's been a very sudden story. Now. Let me just give you one little view into a possible future and I do not underestimate what a colossal battle it will be to reach that future. A battle against ignorance, a battle against complacency, a battle against political cynicism, but also a battle against hugely powerful corporate interests. Um, But let's anyway dare to think a little bit further. And what I would like to suggest to you in a very Misunderstandable way is a kind of new animism, because the animists who thought that with every step they make they step on the territory of somewhere else, someone else. Well, perhaps they weren't so wrong after all. Perhaps they just chose a language that we no longer use to explain this insight. They used the language of myth. And you get this endless soap operas of randy gods running after each other and killing each other. And, you know. But actually, the basic insight that was in that, we are part of networks. We are part of systems. And whatever we change in this system will change that system in a hundred ways. And we can only go as far with these changes as the systems allow us. And if we take from these systems, we have to give something back. Otherwise, these systems are deregulated. These insights don't seem so stupid to us today. It is just that the language of mythology that was used then is no longer our language. We use today a different language. We use the language of science. So I would suggest that not as a great political movement, but as, an idea, as, as, as a means of intellectual liberation, I find it very helpful to think of this idea that this kind of quote-unquote animist approach encourages us to see something that the greatest of all enlightenment thinkers who was born in the city you are sitting in, Baruch Spinoza, his great idea, his great insight was God is everywhere. And with this great insight, he ended religion. That sounds a bit paradoxical, and it's probably the subject for another lecture. But what he meant was God is in all natural laws. God is everywhere in nature. You can't think anywhere, anything without God. And because God has made the rules of nature, the laws of nature himself, he himself can't break them. So don't bother praying to him because the course of the universe is determined and all there is is nature and nothing is outside of nature. And so this whole revolution after 6,000 years of cultural history has brought us to a climate catastrophe which brings humanity to a point of understanding something that is so simple that every five-year-old child can understand it. And that is yet so enormous that I believe it will change humanity deeply. Because after 6,000 years of thinking that we can subjugate the earth, we are finally beginning to understand we are nature. There is nothing outside of nature. We are a part of it. Every one of our products from executions to Netflix series to artificial intelligence is a part of nature, is a product of nature, is a product of natural evolution. And that means there is no space outside of natural systems to be or to live or to act. We are part of these systems. The philosopher Bruno Latour, who died last year, said very elegantly, we are part of the critical zone. We are one of billions of actors on Earth that create the environment. We all need to live. And if we don't understand that, we've understood nothing. So this terribly simple idea is what I want to leave you with and to show you this enormous intellectual and cultural revolution in which we are just um, living, that we're beginning to understand the Mesopotamian biblical heritage of dominating nature, of living with hierarchies and confrontation um, is giving way to the very simple idea that we are nature. Thank you very much for listening.